This is True Compassion, a Christian podcast examining homelessness and its community and how the Christian church can help. Welcome, everyone. I'm your host, Pastor Eric Leidick, and this is True Compassion. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for listening, for your support, for your prayers, and for sharing out the podcast. It is so incredibly important to us that this information is shared out. We really believe that if people come to understand, if we can raise awareness of what people in our local communities are suffering on the street, in addiction, without hope, without love, family, it will create compassion, it will energize the church, and it will have us reaching out to carry our brother's burdens. Today we have a man named David on the program. David's story is uncommon. It isn't typical of what we find on the street with those suffering an addiction. We're so thankful for David sharing his story. Let's get into it. Here's David. Okay, hello. Hello, hello. Thank you for sharing your story. Oh, thank you for having me. Okay, so why don't we start at the beginning? Tell me when you started having challenges. Um, I was about 29 years old. I had a colon resection surgery and I got addicted to the painkillers. Started going through pain management and uh, it was about three years that I was on painkillers before I turned to heroin. Let's step back. In an article posted on WebMD in the year 2022, prescription drug abuse is defined like this. Prescription drug abuse is when you take medication for a reason other than why the doctor prescribed it. Experts estimate that more than 18 million people ages 12 and older have used prescription drugs for non-medical reasons in the previous year. That's more than 6% of the U.S. population. Abusing drugs, even prescription drugs, can change how your brain works. Most people start by choosing to take these medications, but over time, the changes in your brain affect your self-control and your ability to make good decisions. At the same time, you have intense urges to take more drugs. Now, the National Institute on Drug Abuse says three classes of prescription drugs are most commonly abused. Opioids. Since the early 1990s, doctors have been prescribing many more opioid painkillers, such as codeine, hydrocodone, morphine, oxycodone, things like oxycotton, Percocet, and Vicodin. This is partly because of the rising age of the U.S. population and because there are more people living with long-term pain. Now, these medications manage pain well and can help boost your quality of life when you follow the doctor's directions on taking them. It is possible but not common to become addicted or dependent on opioids when you use them for a short period of time or under a doctor's close watch. But when you take them for a long time, they can lead to drug abuse, dependence, and addiction. Opioid overdoses can be life-threatening if you take them with medications that work on your central nervous system, including alcohol, barbiturates, benzos, such as Xanax or Valium, you have a higher chance of breathing problems and death. So how long did it take before you realized you were addicted to the pain pills? Um, honestly, it didn't really occur to me until about a year in. I would notice that like if I, the longer that I went without them, that I would get sick. Um, the first year was like a lot of partying. Um, I was still drinking heavily at the time. Yeah, I was taking more than I should have. And I didn't really realize how bad the addiction had got because, you know, the constant partying and everything. I didn't realize till about a year in that I was like that it had its claws deep in me and I was I was pretty much done for it. When you realize that you're addicted to pain pills, then they give you a pain management doctor. Yeah. Right. So what's the pain management doctor do? 
Okay, let's step back. Now, David's situation is slightly different than the typical. He had a serious medical condition which required him to receive some pain medication. Because he had a history of abuse of drugs in the past, he was assigned a pain management doctor. The pain management doctor's job is to work with David on managing his pain, tightly controlling the medication that he gets. Now, because David was prescribed additional medication from another doctor and filled the prescription, that voided the contract that he signed with the pain management doctor and set him up for falling into addiction and withdrawal. Withdrawal is one of the conditions that most drug users avoid at all costs. It will push them into stealing, it will push them into lying, it will push them into um, doing all sorts of things that a person would not normally do. The feeling of withdrawal is so significant, they'll do anything to avoid that feeling. And turning to illegal drugs on the street seems like the quickest, simplest, and cheapest solution to a body that is screaming out in pain. He's giving me obscene amounts of medication. Like when I was trying to get off of the painkillers and I told my primary doctor, my primary doctor was highly upset. She said I shouldn't be on that type of that, that amount of painkillers. Um, this guy had me on uh, a fat and a hundred micro unit fentanyl patch that lasts three days. Um, he gave me two 80 milligram Oxycontins per day and four 30 milligram Oxycodone Roxy's. They call them Roxy's on the street. And that was my daily, what I was supposed to take. And that's- Wow. Yeah. Wow. That's a tremendous amount. Yeah. So you realize that you're now addicted. Now you flip to heroin. Yeah. Tell me about that. It was an easy flip. I was actually selling at the time. Mm -hmm. um, I was selling painkillers and buying painkillers to supplement what was going on. Cause I didn't take the, um, like when I was like heavily drinking and I was in the midst of partying and kind of blinded by everything. Um, I wasn't taking the Oxycontins. I was selling those. I was taking my fentanyl patch in my thirties and I was taking way more of the thirties than I should have. But the money that I was making from the Oxycontins supplemented to where I could buy more pills that I needed. The money that I was making from selling heroin did the same thing. I was basically supporting my pill habit. And when I started getting really sick and I got cut off of pain management, I got cut off of pain management because I was in the hospital for another surgery and the doctor gave me a prescription for painkillers and was like, make sure you tell your pain management doctor. These are for breakthrough pain in case for the surgery. And uh, I told him the day that I got out, it was two days later, I went and saw him and I told him, I said, hey, listen, the doctor gave me a prescription. He told me to tell you. He was like, did you fill the prescription? I said, yes. And he was like, I can't give you pills anymore. He said, you signed a contract with me in the beginning stating that you would not get painkillers from any other doctor. He said, legally, I'm not allowed to give you painkillers anymore. So right there, I was cut off of everything and I was getting sick. Mm. And that's when it turned to it, uh, heroin was so readily available. It was in my neighborhood. I was selling it. It just mm -hmm. turned to heroin. Yeah. Tell me where the heroin addiction took you. Oh, uh, God. Um, it took me to rock bottom. Took me places I never, never thought I would be. Um, I was when I when I stopped hustling because I was messing up packs so much so often. You know I couldn't sell anymore. I was using more than I was selling. It was just it was counterproductive. I had I started boosting, um, lying to family, stealing from family members, um, stealing from my girlfriend at the time. 
just stealing in general. I was boosting a lot, selling stuff that I boosted. Um, it, it took me to rock bottom. Places I never thought I would be in my life. Yeah. yeah. So explain rock bottom. What's that? Oh, God. Waking up every day sick as a dog. Um, having to steal just to feel normal. Having to get high just to feel normal. Um, being out on the street. Just this that vicious cycle like Groundhog's Day. It's the same thing over and over and over. And it doesn't get any better. It just gets progressively worse. Mm-hmm. Okay. You're using your at rock bottom. Um, what's your living situation with? Uh, it was back and forth between staying on a friend's couch and staying, you know, behind on the benches behind the EPA building. Or staying on a bench in the cemetery. So describe sleeping outside. It's horrible. You can't get comfortable. Um, permitting the weather. You never know what it's going to be like. You're scared because you never know what's going to happen to you while you're asleep. You got to sleep. You know what I mean? It's just, it's not, it's not real sleep. It's not, it's not rest. You know what I mean? It's just closing your eyes for a couple of hours and praying that nothing happens to you. Let's step back. It's not rest. For people who don't have access to a bed, a locked door, and an iPhone alarm, sleep deprivation is caused by more than just your mind not shutting off or having that late meal that you shouldn't have eaten. Without a doubt, sleep is the biggest issue for homeless people. For individuals without permanent housing, sleep is difficult to come by. When there's no way to secure your personal belongings, it's dangerous and frightening to be as vulnerable as they are, as you can be in a truly restful sleep. As a result, sleep becomes a matter of when you can, where you can, and often you just can't, leading to a host of other mental and physical ailments. Sleep deprivation has also been linked to mental illness, drug abuse, higher rates of violence, and aggression. Schizophrenia-like symptoms may also start to develop, which is problematic in a population that already experiences higher than average likelihood of suffering from mental disorders. The dangers of the elements. In colder climates like our New Jersey winter, even nodding off it may be a death sentence. The possibility of attack, the physical maladies that arise from perpetual dampness and grime, making achieving good sleep an impossible feat. Even finding enough ground to stake out can be difficult. Did you know that in many of our parks, it's illegal to sleep there? There are potential legal ramifications. The National Law Center on Homelessness and Poverty has found that of the 234 American cities, 40% make it a crime to sleep in public spaces. Other factors affect sleeping habits of people who are suffering in homelessness, like noise levels, too much light, harassment by pedestrians or other people driving by, other homeless people, weather, fear, paranoia, the the fear of being robbed or mugged or raped or beaten up, or just general harassment, the hot ground, the cold ground, debris on the ground, vermins, bugs, rats, birds, hunger, people nearby having conversations and voices loud enough to keep someone awake, although not intentional, having a good quiet spot, people waking you up for blankets, cigarettes, police looking for criminals, other people looking for their friends, asking for directions, giving you food or other things. Sleep is hard for those that are suffering in homelessness, and sleeping outside is not rest.
did you did you ever have any legal issues because of your drug abuse? Yeah, not not serious legal issues, but I mean, I spent I spent a good three years in now the county. Never never no prison bids. I never had to go to prison. But um, what was that like? Describe county to me. Okay, usually when you arrive at county, you go through intake. You sit there for about an hour while they ask you medical questions. Um, at this point, normally being a heroin addict, you're sick as a dog. And you're waiting to see the, the nurses. So you're sitting there doing intake for about an hour. They're fingerprinting you. Um, they're taking your picture. And you go straight to medical. You go to medical, you explain your situation, like that you're an addict, you're using. I would usually lie and say I was also an alcoholic because if you're an alcoholic, they give you um, Librium and that helps with the heroin control. Mm-hmm. They don't give it to you for just heroin. Mm-hmm. So, but, um, so you're in the nurses, you see the nurses in medical for about another hour. You know, the, the intake process is usually about two hours long, three hours long. And then uh, you go to your pod, wherever they're going to send you. Now, I was usually in Southeast to left um, because of my neighborhood. They keep, they tend to keep neighborhoods together because different neighborhoods and different gangs. Um, Southeast to left is, it's a blood tier. Mm-hmm. It's, it's all blood. It's all uh, G shine. Well, it was at the point when I was in there. It's, it switches and varies from time to time. Um, the tiers, you walk in, there's a day room. It's about as big as this room here. So about, you know, maybe 20 by 20. A um, couple of tables and a TV, and then you walk through, and then there's the tier. It's nothing. It's about a row on each side of the walls of about 20 to 30 bunk beds that are three high. And that's where you stay. You don't go out. You don't go outside. They rarely ever had outside rec when I was there. Um, maybe once a week. You got outside rec for an hour. But you're usually just in a tier with, you know, 80 other guys, 100 other guys, and... You're left to your vices. You're left to either gambling, getting involved with gangs, or reading. Mm. Okay, let's step back. You heard David refer to county. He's referring to county jail. County jail, or lockup, is different than prison. Prison is a secure facility that houses people that have been convicted of one or more felony criminal offenses and are serving a sentence of a year or longer. These are typically facilities that are run by the state. County lockup is different. Almost everyone who's arrested is taken to a local county or city jail, which is run by the county or its sheriff. People who aren't bonded out must stay there until their case is completed, and so most of the people in the local jails are not yet convicted, otherwise considered innocent. And there are a few people held in county lockups that are serving a short sentence for a minor charge. Now, county jails typically hold people who have been arrested and are pending a legal agreement, a trial, or sentencing. People who have been convicted of a misdemeanor criminal offense and are serving a sentence typically less than a year. People who have been sentenced to prison and are about to be transferred to another facility. Jails are also known as detention or correctional center. They're operated by a county or city government. Lockups are facilities in smaller communities where one to a few arrestees can be held for a short period of time pending transfer to a nearby detention center or jail. Municipal jails are short-term facilities where people are held until transported to a county jail. Many new detainees arrive in jails daily. Some stay for less than a day or only a few days until they're okayed for release 
pending a court proceeding. Some are released after putting up bail or being released to pretrial services after being placed on probation or are released on their own recognizance after having agreed to appear in court. When did things start to turn around? Um, they started to turn around a little over a year ago when I started going to the church. Um, I started going through uh, to Bible study in the church on Sunday and I didn't feel right using at the same time that I was going to church and it, using I was just so tired of it. I was so beat up and um, a couple times actually I went to detox, came home. It wasn't it wasn't long enough for me. Like I would go to detox. It'd be six, seven days. I'd hit the street and you know, I didn't learn anything. I didn't learn any coping mechanisms. I didn't learn anything. I just got clean for a couple of days and then they just let you back out on the street. So I did that a couple of times and I realized that it, it just wasn't enough and I needed time. Mm -hmm. And so the last time that I went to detox was actually um, September, like 17th or something like that, 2021. And when I was in there, I told them, listen, if you guys put me back out on the street, I'm going to die. I'm not going to survive. I told them I needed something long term. They actually kept me there. I should have been there for like six, seven days. They kept me there about 16 days because they were actively looking for uh, long term treatment for me. And I told them, I said, listen, I'll take anything. As long, the longer, the better. Just, you know, I'm in your hands. And they had two places for me. They had Straight and Narrow and they had John Brooks. Straight and Narrow had a bed open immediately john brooks was like three days i was like straight and arrow let's go and i went there i was there for about eight months seven and a half eight months something like that yeah how was that program for you um it was a little weird getting used to uh it's it's kind of like jail being that it's just a bunch of guys you know I mean, the living situation is obviously better than jail was but it's a lot of idle time between meetings and between groups, there is a lot of idle time. You know, worked on a lot of my coping skills. Mm -hmm. So I learned a lot from that place. Okay, good. So did you ever stay at the mission? Uh, yeah, one night. All right, and tell me about the one night. I just wasn't beat for it. Having, it was, it just, you didn't feel safe inside. It was, A, it was dirty, it was crowded. Um, you were just another number. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? They didn't, you weren't treated like a person. And I was really active in my addiction at that time. So I felt that being outside and getting high was better than being in a mission. Mm -hmm. uh, and I know a lot of people feel like that and it's a shame. Yeah. Okay. And so what was the hardest time for you in your addiction? Um, the hardest time for me, honestly, the thing that, that still bothers me the most was when I realized how addicted I was and when I was still selling heroin to people because I felt like I was tearing other people down and it, it still impacts me a lot to this day. Like, I, I mean, like when I was younger, before the heroin, before my life turned downhill, I, I sold coke a lot when I was like late teens, early twenties. Mm -hmm. I was selling drugs on and off my whole life. Um, I never felt bad about it. You know what I mean? I never felt like I was ruining someone else's life. When I was addicted and I seen what the drugs had done to me and I was still doing it, still selling heroin to survive, to get, to get high, it, it, it got to me. It kind of like ate away at my soul. Mm -hmm. 
And that's one of the things like, you know, I mean, there was a lot of lying, a lot of stealing and don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm definitely ashamed of it, but that is what I really regret the most. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. When you realize your actions are actually hurting other people, it's one of the things that we discover about sin. It is personal to us, but then you are also impacting the circle around you and the circle around them. Were you ever involved in any dangerous situations on the street? I lost one of my best friends to gun violence. So there was a guy that was hustling for my friend. He was short money on a package and um, they got into like a little argument and he was like, well, just front me more and I'll spend that money to pay you back. You know what I mean? I'll pay you back. And he was like, no, no, no. And then he actually gave in. He was like, fine, come back later tonight and I'll front you another pack. And the dude was like, no, I need it now. And my boy was just like, you know what, get out of here. And they got into an argument and my boy beat him up. Mm -hmm. And uh, he didn't like that. So he came back with a gun. It was about 1030 at night, 10 o'clock, something like that. He shot him over 10 times. Um, I was there to see the ambulances. I was there for the aftermath. What was it specifically in your addiction that there, there had to be a specific like waking moment for you? Yeah, I um, like I told you, I was drinking heavily at the time, partying a lot, even with the pills, um, you know, abusing them, but not heavily abusing them, but still taking more than I was supposed to take. I, uh, I still remember the day I went to work. Um, I was working at Home Depot at the time. I drove a forklift pretty much my whole life. So, well, my whole working life. Um, I went to work and I didn't take my pills with me. I left them at home. And the last time I took a pill, well, a couple of pills was, you know, like say 12 o'clock, one o'clock at night, the night before. And I'm at work four o'clock in the morning. I had to be there. So, you know, I, I'm on a couple hours sleep. Um, I'm at work. And I forgot my medication. And I was like, I'll be fine. Like, you know, I only got to stay here for eight hours. It's not a big deal. And two hours into work, I was sick as a dog. I was throwing up. Felt like I had the flu. And I didn't know what it was. I was thinking that maybe it was from drinking the night before. Maybe I drank too much. Um, but by the time I got home, like I left work early and I got home. And I was like, I literally almost couldn't drive. Cold sweats. Like, I i didn't know if I had food poisoning. I didn't know what it was, but I was sick. And by the time I got home, I took my medication. And like 10 minutes later, I felt fine. And I knew right there that it was too late. Like, wow. Yeah. Significant. Well, that's tough. Now you're here at the men's mission house. Right. And what's your outlook? My outlook is hopeful. Um, you know, I feel blessed that every day I wake up and I don't have to go through the same thing. The same like vicious cycle of trying to get high, trying to just to feel normal. And I just, I feel blessed. Um, you know, I'm currently trying to help my mother find a place to live. That's taking a lot of my time up, but um, I'm looking forward to starting to work again, starting to get back into society. Not everybody has experience with addiction. Mm -hmm. What's something that you think people need to know? That it could happen to anybody. It's not just the cities and, and you know the lower class people. This this affects everybody. Mm -hmm. It seems more and more that people like 
they used to hear about somebody's family member that was an addict. And now everybody has a family member that's an addict and it's just growing and growing and growing. And a lot of people just look at it like, you know, you can stop whenever you want. Like a lot of people are just like, why don't you just quit? Why don't you just quit? It's not that simple. Just it's, it takes everything out of you. It literally, literally eats away at your soul and it's, it's mental, it's physical, the addiction, but with heroin, you know what I mean? It's mental, it's physical, it's, it's, it's bondage. <laughs> and they, people just don't understand that. They don't realize it. They don't think it could happen to them. You know what I mean? I never thought, I, I, I had experiences with drugs my whole life selling drugs uh, off and on. And I never thought I would be an addict. I never thought it would happen to me. I had an aunt that was a pill head, two aunts that were pill heads. Uh, an uncle that was a heroin addict. So I looked at stuff like that, like and kind of despised it. And then, you know, doing the right thing, starting to work, starting to, uh, you know, I had my health insurance, I was working, I had my own place. And then I had my surgery and I'm doing what the doctors are telling me to do. Not expecting that, hey, this is gonna lead to being on the street, homeless, stealing and selling drugs to get by again. Like I had put hustling behind me at that point when I first got addicted, I wasn't, I hadn't hustled for years. I was working, I had my own place and like I'd put all that behind me. I never thought that I would go back to it. It's just, I can't, I can't emphasize how much it, it a bondage it is. It's, it's like having a ball and chain on you and just being stuck. Mm-hmm. It's like you're, you're fighting to survive every day, mm-hmm. but you don't realize that you're actually fighting yourself. Mm. You know what I mean? Like you, you, you beat yourself up so much every day. You put your body through so much abuse and you don't really realize it until it's too late. Mm. Like by the time that you realize it, you're, you're already done for. And the only thing that's going to help is some sort of intervention, some sort of, some sort of long-term program. Like a lot of people go to these detoxes and it's like, uh, like a tune-up for them they go it's like a little vacation they get clean they go back out and they do it all over again i know i did it myself several times before i got clean. yeah you know you're going through all this stuff how did the lord impact you you know i before before god was in my life i i didn't feel like i had a purpose i didn't feel like i was here for anything i like i told you earlier today like you know there's a difference between not having a purpose or not feeling like you have a purpose mm-hmm. Like at that point in time, I didn't feel like I had a purpose. I wanted to, but I just didn't feel like it. And you know, when I accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, and you know, when I started getting closer to God, when I started coming to church more often, I felt like I had a purpose. I felt like I was part of something. Mm -hmm. So David, thank you. Thank you very much for sharing your story. Thank you for having me. The Bible is very clear as to what our purpose in life should be. Men in both the Old and the New Testament saw for and discovered life's purpose. One Old Testament man we looked at recently was Abram. In Genesis chapter 17, God reminds Abraham of the covenant that he established with him 25 years prior. Let's read first one in chapter 17. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make a covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face 
And God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but you shall be called Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. Amen. God's first words to Abram in this section of passages was an introduction and then a declaration of his being by this name God Almighty or El Shaddai. God revealed his person and character to Abram. God then told Abram what was expected of him and God changes his name from Abram to Abraham signifying and restating God's amazing purpose for Abraham. From a promise of land to a promise of legacy, a heavenly legacy. What a wonderful purpose. What a wonderful God. You heard David talk about purpose as well in the podcast. David said, going to Bible study and going to church, he started to discover he had a purpose. He had a God that loved him and desired a different life for him. Like Abraham, coming to grips with the fact that God Almighty has a purpose for your life can be earth-shaking, and it certainly can create a new type of desire in your heart. Our purpose in life as God originally created man is to glorify God and enjoy fellowship with him, to have good relationships with others, to work and have dominion over the earth. But with man's fall into sin, fellowship with God is broken. Relationships with others are strained. Working seems to be always so frustrating and man struggles to maintain dominion over nature. Only by restoring fellowship with God through faith in Jesus Christ can purpose in life be rediscovered. This is what David is discovering. The purpose of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. We glorify God by fearing and obeying him, by keeping our eyes on our future home in heaven and knowing him intimately. We enjoy God by following his purpose for our lives, which enables us to experience true and lasting joy, the abundance he desired for us. Well, I hope you've enjoyed this podcast listening to David's story. What a courageous young man desiring to turn his life around. Won't you please pray for him? And please remember to share this podcast out. The purpose of this podcast is to increase understanding and awareness of what the homeless and addicted community inside of New Jersey, Mercer County, and Trenton are suffering with, what life looks like for them. So by you sharing this out, we can increase compassion for these people who are suffering so. Again, thanks so much for joining us. God bless you. Again, thank you for your time and for listening. This is True Compassion. God bless you. True Compassion is an RHM production.